This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So today I want to talk about a word that is very close to my heart, and that word is grandmother. And may I also ask you to send me words in different languages. How do you call your grandmother? Because I'm always intrigued. I'm always interested in those terms of endearment. You know, how do we express our love for our grandmothers? In every culture, there are these shortened words, or in different households, there are these specific words that we use, especially for our grandmothers. And I also want to tell you that for me personally, this is an important word because I was raised by my grandmother until the age 10. I, actually, I was raised by two women, my mother and my grandmother, in a very patriarchal culture, in a very uh, patriarchal context. It left a big impact on me. There were completely different personalities, my mother and my grandmother. Mom is very westernized, she's very urban, she's very modern, if I may use all these terms. She's very rational, she's very well educated. And grandma is pretty much the opposite. You know, she would tick all the, all the other boxes. And she was more spiritual. Some people might say she was more irrational. She wasn't well educated because she had been denied the proper education for being a girl. She had been taken out of school. And she was someone who wholeheartedly believed in women's education. And she was a very wise woman. And she taught me that as much as I love books, I love knowledge, you know, intellectual accumulation. I also learned from her that there are different paths to knowledge and wisdom and that there are different things. That's why I believe information is different than knowledge and knowledge is different than wisdom. It was grandma who taught me in a way, who showed me all these things. And she was a storyteller. She was an oral storyteller. Uh, she knew so many tales and legends and riddles. She was a bit of a healer in her own way. So people came to our house and the house was full of magic. So I grew up observing all of that and it left a big impact on me. And I want to read this little section from this small booklet, How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division, in which I do talk about grandmothers. I was born in France. Our first house in Strasbourg was a flat in a tower block. In the mornings, for about half of the year, sunlight spilled through the curtains, caressing with its long golden fingers the frills of the sofa against the wall, the covers of the books spilled here and there. Always there would be visitors, immigrants, students, artists with hardly a penny to play with. They would read and discuss Althusser, Guy Debord, Jean-Paul Sartre, though less so Simone de Beauvoir. A difference I would notice only much later in retrospect. Competing smells of cooking hovered in the air. Turkish, Lebanese, Moroccan, Algerian, Syrian, Levantine cuisine. The aroma of cigarettes, strong and pervasive gouloise. 
Heated debates about social change and social justice were a constant within these walls. For my parents and their friends back then, revolution was not a noun, it was a verb. It didn't last long. Soon afterwards, my parents separated. My father stayed in France and my mother decided to go back to Turkey. For her, Turkey was motherland. For me, it was a new country to discover altogether. In the state, we arrived at my maternal grandmother's house in Ankara, a profoundly conservative, patriarchal neighborhood, a two-story, sage-green house with a garden on three sides, fruit trees, cherries, apples, pears, and mulberries that stained your hands at the slightest touch. Evil eye beads on the walls, melted lead in copper pots, scattered salt in every corner. In the mornings, when I got out of bed, I had to be careful where I stepped because there might be an invisible genie sleeping on the floor. In the afternoons, women from all over the neighborhood crammed into the house, waxing their legs with homemade wax as they gossiped to their heart's content. I couldn't believe how sexual their jokes often were. In the evenings, there would be prayers sometimes, a more solemn mood, words in Arabic that I couldn't comprehend. I was fascinated by this new world that I was thrust into, a world where women were clearly not treated equally, but neither were they weak or timid. Here's a detail in our story, an important one. When she got married, my mother was still a student and making a huge mistake, she had dropped out of university, much to my grandmother's sorrow. Although my grandmother had treasured school at an early age, she herself had been pulled out of her studies just because she was a girl. My mother, carried away by the idealism of the 1970s, had not seen much value in attending a bourgeois university, and she had quit without telling anyone. So years later, now as a young divorcee, she had no diploma, no career, no job. Women in such situations would be immediately married off, usually to someone older. And this is what the neighbors were advising us to do when grandma intervened. She urged her daughter, my mother, to go back to university, finish her studies and build herself a career. When relatives and neighbors objected to this radical idea, reminding that this was a divorced woman with a child, grandma said, I will take care of my granddaughter till the day her mother is ready. And so I was, until the age of 10, raised by grandma, while my mother went back to university, took extra classes, and eventually she graduated with flying colors. She continued studying, learning three more languages. She then entered the exams of the foreign ministry. This was at a time when being a diplomat was usually regarded as a family tradition passed from fathers to sons. So eventually she became a diplomat. The day we received the news that she had excelled in the exams, we went out to celebrate, my grandmother, my mother and I. It was in Ankara's only amusement park, next to an artificial lagoon around which families strolled, cracking sunflower seeds. We sat at a restaurant with an outdoor terrace. It was a time of political chaos and escalating violence. Bombs exploded on the streets. Workers were gunned down in front of factory gates. 
A constant tension and fear floated in the air. But in that fleeting moment, for once, the world felt serene. My mother, her voice slightly shaking, thanked her mother for the support she had given all these years. And in return, Grandma said something that today, in our pandemic world, I find myself remembering. Don't thank me, Grandma said. You focus on improving your daughter's life. We inherit our circumstances. We improve them for the next generation. I had little education. I wanted you to do better. Now you need to make sure your daughter has more than you had. Isn't this the natural way of the world? To grandma, what she had done was not a personal sacrifice. It was the way things ought to be. She was also giving me a piece of advice, reminding me to work hard so that my children could be better educated and better off than my future self. It is a memory that I revisit because it stands in stark contrast to what is happening across the world nowadays. In the past, generations across the world have gone through enormous hardships and trials, including world wars, the Great Depression, a Cold War. But principally, they have retained the conviction that thanks to education, their children would have better opportunities. My mother and grandmother had an entrenched faith that tomorrow, almost by definition, would be brighter than yesterday. They believed that in the fullness of time, Turkey, with a greater number of citizens getting educated, would be fully democratic, secular. Trusting in progress was at the center of their worldview. If every generation did their best and spared no effort to improve the conditions they had inherited from their parents, gradually, incrementally, the world would become a fairer place. Today, the faith that tomorrow will be better than yesterday is simply no more. This is what the great political sociologist Zygmunt Bauman described as the parents' point of arrival being imagined as the children's starting point and the point with yet more roads stretching ahead, all leading upwards. That's how he described. For a long time, the accepted norm was that youth would reach further, however far their parents might have reached. Bauman explained, or so they, at any rate, have been taught and indoctrinated to believe. Nothing has prepared them for the arrival of the hard, uninviting and inhospitable new world of downgrading and devaluation of earned merits, doors shown and locked, volatility of jobs, and stubbornness of joblessness, transience of prospects, and durability of defeats, of a new world of stillborn projects and frustrated hopes, and of chances ever more conspicuous by their absence. In other words, expectations are falling. Mobility, in as far as it exists, is not upward, but downward. There was a Pew Center survey in 2020 that showed that the oldest of Generation Z have been particularly hard hit by the coronavirus crisis, much more than baby boomers or Generation Xers or millennials. And here's the paradox. Gen Z, 
also named iGen or post-millennials, they are going to be the most diverse and well-educated generation yet. They're more likely to enroll in university. They're less likely to drop out of high school. But in this day and age, which grandmother can argue with confidence that thanks to education, the next generation will have it easier? For women like my mother, education meant monetary freedom and escape from ultra-conservative norms and patriarchal limitations. In an era characterized by insecurity, fragility, and downward mobility, when everything feels transient, what exactly does education guarantee? So these are important questions, and I think they're going to continue to preoccupy us for a long time. My grandmother passed away recently, and I do think about her a lot. I also wonder what she would advise me if she were alive today. And I think despite all the hardships that I mentioned in this little piece, she would, just like many women of her generation would, nonetheless believe in, you know, struggling, keep struggling, keep trying. When you fall down, stand up, keep walking. She would also believe in empowering others. And this is a very important piece of advice from her that stayed with me. We cannot only think of ourselves or bettering our own lives. We have to bear in mind that we're in this together. So how do we empower ourselves? Of course, but how do we empower each other? We owe this to each other, despite all the challenges that our historical period brings us. We do not have the luxury of being disconnected, disengaged, indifferent. We don't have the luxury of being numb to each other's stories and sorrows. We have to remain connected and we have to keep trying.